The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org backslash radio hour. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on this week's show, we're speaking with director Nicole Noonan about her recent documentary, The Disappearance of Cher Height, which focuses on a path-breaking sexological researcher. Right. And so what she did was she sent out anonymous surveys to women all over the country asking them intimate questions about their sexuality, their sexual practices, their preferences, you know, everything from the way that they relate to their own bodies to the ways that they may or may not be having sex. And she put that all together and she published that as a book called The Height Report. Mm -hmm. One of the main findings of which, of course, was that most women do not achieve orgasm through what we would call like standard sexual intercourse. Right. Yes, that's right. And we do kind of get into it in one more detail on the show. I think we can we can be decently dressed during this introduction. Does that make sense? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. In the interview, we'll be talking about different forms of sexual stimulation that Cher Height's Height Report kind of brought to a thing that probably many women in particular understood privately, but which was not really discussed publicly, which is basically about how women achieve orgasm. Achieve orgasm. Yeah. And this was a huge, you know, this was a huge, huge hit at the time that it was published. Something that really struck me is that I think it's like one of the all-time bestsellers. Like, Yes, a wild runaway bestseller hit. And then Cher Height, you know, she publishes another book about male sexuality, and she just you know, the media goes after her. They really, really seem to make her life quite miserable, partly because people aren't so happy to hear what she has to say. And so this it's a fascinating documentary. Cher Height is a really interesting person. It's interesting to hear about somebody who is so much in the public eye and then just kind of disappears. Yes. I mean, it's also another, and we talk about this in the interview, but it's It's another instance of where, like, as you're saying, the kind of media backlash against her is largely driven by men and largely not really engaged with the subject of Cher Height's writing, but rather with these inferences that they appear to draw from it, most of which is this anxiety about, like, well, perhaps women won't even need men sexually anymore. Like, maybe women can just do without men, which seems this, like, ongoing male cultural anxiety that is both hysterical to think about and talk about, but also like kind of devastating in terms of thinking about the effects of it on people like Cher Height, who is just trying to show what the research showed and got vilified and pilloried for it. Yeah, much, much wrong has been committed in the name of male anxiety. Exactly. (laughs) This is just another casualty in that long, long list. Anyway, fascinating to learn more about her and Shall we get to the interview? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. 
Oh, and just a quick note before we jump into this conversation, for our LA listeners, The Disappearance of Sheer Height actually is released in Los Angeles today, Friday, November 17th. So if you are in Los Angeles, you can go check it out in the theater rather than waiting for it to appear on the streamers. So check that out. And without further ado, here is our conversation with Nicole Noonan, director of The Disappearance of Sheer Height. We're excited to have Nicole Noonan with us on the line today. Nicole is an award-winning documentary film director, producer, and writer, perhaps best known for her Oscar-nominated film Crip Camp, which was released in 2020, as well as the multiply Emmy-nominated 2006 documentary The Rape of Europa, which explored the Nazis' plundering of masterworks of European art during World War II. Nicole joins us today to discuss her latest film, The Disappearance of Cher Height. The documentary explores the life, work, and critical backlash against researcher and writer Cher Height, whose 1976 book, The Height Report on Female Sexuality, as well as its 1981 follow-up, The Height Report on Men and Male Sexuality, became a media sensation even as it eventually made her a media pariah. Height's research, distilled from thousands of survey responses received from men and women across the United States, revealed first that women often don't experience orgasm during penetrative intercourse, and second, that masturbation was what most women turned to in order to achieve orgasm. The result of that finding was to destabilize the predominantly male-oriented approach to discourse on sex and sexuality, and to open up taboo subjects like masturbation and other forms of clitoral stimulation as the paths to female pleasure. Almost immediately, male readers and thinkers assailed Height's findings, straining to claim that she was arguing men were irrelevant to female pleasure and could be simply done without. When her follow-up study of responses from men revealed the eroded emotional core and capacity of American masculinity, as well as the burden men felt performing masculinity in public and for their partners, and the frequency of extramarital affairs for both sexes, it felt like an almost concerted campaign of male backlash to turn Height into a pariah, one that sought to refute her results by attacking her survey methodology and her as a person. Eventually, Cher Height was all but forced into exile in Europe, spending her remaining years there with her German concert pianist husband as her work receded from public view, silenced and forgotten in the United States. Though few may remember Height's name and work today, the Height Report on Female Sexuality was among the 30 best-selling books of all time, and it's Height's story as a woman, as a researcher, and as a cultural firebrand that Nicole Noonan brings to life in The Disappearance of Cher Height. Welcome to the show, Nicole. We're thrilled to have you with us. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Nicole, let's just start with the subject of, of your movie. How did you decide to make a documentary about Cher Height? Well, when I was 12 years old, I got into the bedside chest of my mother. Like, I must have been bored. I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, <laughs> and it was the 70s, so there weren't as many distractions. And I found The Height Report, this big, imposing book by Cher Height. And my mom sort of had a, you know, philosophy that anything you wanted to read, you could read. So I don't think she meant for me to find that book, but I felt fine about diving into it. And what I found was sort of a portal into a world of female sexuality that was, you know, beyond anything that I had certainly been told by my family or heard from friends or had discovered in the kind of 
really pathetic pamphlets that were given out in sex education in my public school. So it was a whole panoply of different varieties of experiences that different women were having and sharing intimately with Cher Height, you know, like they were talking to their best friend. And what I realized with the shock when I read her obituary in 2020 in the New York Times and the headline said, Cher Height, she explained how women orgasm and she was hated for it, which kind of disturbed me and made me lean in. And then I, I just remembered all of these women's voices and experiences. And I realized like they were kind of my friend group that taught me about sexuality and made me realize that I wasn't alone and that people have different experiences across a spectrum and that sexuality is a construct of our culture. And all of those things are such fundamental, important things. So then I started to wonder what happened to Cher Height? Why did people hate her? Where did she go? Why don't we talk about her anymore? And how did she manage to do this all in the first place? And that was the genesis of the film. Let's like just dive in, I think, to that first book, right? The landmark, like the Height Report on Female Sexuality. So as you know, I kind of mentioned in the intro, one of the major findings was that, in fact, women do not often experience orgasm from penetrative sex, right? That in fact, like many more women in the survey responses that Cher Height kind of compiled reported that masturbation was usually a more direct route to the female orgasm, right? So can we talk a little bit about the initial media reaction to that book, which seemed largely positive, and then how it kind of morphed as we started to experience what I I would characterize as extreme male reactionary response. I mean there was a there was a reactionary male response, you know, from the get-go, but it was a bit drowned out in the sort of celebratory response from women and some men too. And you know, I've thought about this a lot obviously and and my previous documentary was was the film Crip Camp and that film is, you know, at a liberatory camp for kids with disabilities in the, around the same time period, actually, you know, the sort of early 1970s. And that's when Cher started working on the Height Report, which came out in 1976. And I really believe at that point in our culture, there was a, a larger sense that we could change the world, that the world could be changed by social activism and that organizing was the way to do it. And so I think there was a lot of hope and energy and Cher's book was really coming out of consciousness raising groups and her work with with feminism. And that's where she really found her place in the world for the first time. And so I think that was the spirit in which it was received by the public was like, yeah, what if we did have a world where people were able to freely talk about sexuality and their own experiences and we could admit this you know, truth, which people, I think, you know, most women probably if they weren't achieving orgasm or feeling fulfilled in their sex lives, even if they weren't even aware of their clitoris, which was the case for a lot of the women who responded to share, they knew they weren't being fulfilled, you know? So there was a huge relief to actually talk about it. And as you see in the film, even men like, you know, Geraldo Rivera are kind of getting in on, on it and kind of talking about it with a lot of hope that we could work our way towards a better sexual relation that wasn't so politicized and where women's pleasure wasn't written out of that equation. So, but then I think from the very beginning, there was this seed of doubt in the male response, which is, well, what does that mean about me and my place in this? And 
my sort of obligation to satisfy and make happy a woman if she can just make herself happy on her own, you know? And that, of course, was the opposite of Cher's intent. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because that is such a... She forcefully pushes back against that claim that's made over and over again in the media, which is basically that, are you saying that men are now irrelevant and that, in fact, what we're looking forward to in the future is a, a uselessness of the male if like women can just get themselves off, which on the one hand seems to be totally contrary to anyone, but the most extreme reactionaries experience of sex, right? Like it doesn't, we all have multiple different ways of getting off. That doesn't mean that we don't need a partner or want to have a partner in a sexual experience. So do you have any sense as you've kind of poured over the history of what caused that switch? Like, was it coming from a more conservative group or was it suddenly like as the discourse started to digest what the potential i guess ramifications of this report could be that it it headed in this reactionary i think quite misogynistic direction yeah i mean i think that there was a general backlash in the culture at large which has been you know written about by susan faludi and, and other people against second wave feminism and the kind of cultural changes that it was proposing and i so you know, I think that started to kind of rise up in the critical discourse against Cher's work. It was all about kind of like a fundamental change in society, right? And Cher was saying like, even our most intimate, the most intimate core of our most private lives is political. And we're not gonna have real equality in our culture if we don't even have equality in our own bedrooms, in our own sexual lives. And that was threatening to people. So I think one of the things we really tried hard in the film to illustrate was like the positive, amazing energy of all of these lovely men, many of whom Cher dated, <laughs> um, but who were her friends who, who were also really excited about this enterprise. Because obviously, like you would think at, at their core, like most men wouldn't want to be with someone who wasn't also experiencing pleasure. So and in fact, I've spoken with many men in screening the film around the country who who have said that they really thank her because that's where they learned, you know, <laughs> how to engage sexually with their girlfriends in ways that could bring them pleasure. So, so that was really her enterprise. But, you know, I think people recognize that something like this could be the tip of the iceberg. You know, I've also had someone tell me, oh, Cher Height ruined my first marriage. That kind of like awakening and demanding of kind of really being listened to and really expecting that kind of equitable relationship was very scary to a lot of people. It's so interesting to hear you say that because I, there's a certain point in the film, the height report comes out, it's focused on female sexuality. She then goes on to publish another book on male sexuality, similar methods, a questionnaire that is filled out anonymously, sent out all over the country, people send their answers. And it struck me that at a certain point, in terms of the way that chair height was relating with the media, her biggest frustration, and she kept saying this over and over, you're doing what the men that these women are complaining about are doing, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. And it struck me like how much of what she was trying to do was really just establish forms of communication and ways of, of discussing something that you know, you see like David Hasselhoff at a late night talk show, like blushing, like he can't even mention sex, like he can't, he's acting like a child. But I wonder if, 
you were sort of thinking about it in this way that like really her big project is forms of communication. Is it a questionnaire? Is it a conversation? Is it media? Is it listening to each other? How do we talk about sex? How do we do this? Yeah, I mean, I have absolutely, I think that that was her project. In fact, when I think about, you know, look back on her her life and all of her work, I, I think of her in a large sense as an artist, you know? I think she was sort of creating this massive art project that had profound ramifications in our culture. You know, I spoke to men who said that, you know, by the mid-80s, they would have said, we live in a post-share height world. Like, she sort of changed everything for us, and certainly women felt that way, too. Another friend of hers said that she was, she may have invented social media, (laughs) and that the height report was like a very early way for women to come together and have a conversation like you see the echoes of in, you know, the Me Too movement, right? Where, like, something that is your personal private experience can suddenly be explored on a broad level with people anonymously all over the country who might have before not ever been able to talk about these things, you know? That was sort of one of the compelling things about Cher Height as a character was that, you know, here she was giving thousands of people the cloak of anonymity to say these things, to say their truths, and healing people because of doing that, because of that kind of, like, brave, active communication. But she was the figure who had to go on the talk shows and take the hits, you know, and she was the person whose, you know, personality and character was impugned, you know, for sort of daring to bring up these things and break this silence and sort of try to overcome these taboos. I mean, I still get resistance myself to saying these words and for working on this film. And in my research for it, I spoke with many people who are kind of like modern day share heights, you know, working on these issues. And you know, their work doesn't get published. It doesn't get funded. There really still is such a stigma against even just using and saying words related to female sexuality. So I think Cher was really right to focus on communication because until cultural and societal attitudes change, I think we won't be approaching the kind of freedom or equality that people deserve. That's something that kept coming up for me over and over again watching this film is both like how on the one hand certain findings from the height report on men and male sexuality such as men feel themselves to be burdened and or we might even say oppressed by the attempt to live up to a masculine ideal that is very few people's lived reality right but another part of it was a number of men talking about the feeling of not being able to be quote unquote emotional, not being able to cry, that comes up pretty frequently. And yet it feels like 20, 30 years later, if we talk about the the height report, we're almost 40 years, over 40 years later, because that was published in 1981, the report on men and male sexuality. These are still things that we're dealing with, right? Like on the one hand, the benefit of having this kind of research out there and the cultural discourse that it fomented is that now that doesn't seem totally controversial to say that like men in American culture tend to have stunted emotional lives and that that has very real impacts on their quality of life, right? Men trying to live up to traditional sexuality. But I'm curious how you felt, on the one hand, as a documentarian working on a an historical project of a woman and her work from a particular time, like, do you not see the threads of that work all over a kind of present reaction where we seem in yet 
another anxiety crisis about men and masculinity. Definitely. And I mean, that has exploded in in some ways, you know, with the row reversal happening while we were working on the film. And, you know, a lot of the sort of right-wing culture that is, you know, blowing up right now, that's kind of hyper-traditional, masculine-focused, and all the regressive cultural laws that are being passed in states like Florida, like all of that has gotten worse as I've been working on the film. But even from the very beginning, I think one of the things I was very motivated by was trying to take this story that had been really lost and forgotten from our history because people have so forgotten Cher Height and her work and who she is and everything about that and show how that was not intentional, like there was a conspiracy to do it, but an intentional kind of silencing that was a result of the rise of the right wing, the rise of kind of like media hegemony and talk shows where like if some woman could be kind of made fun of and thrown from talk show to talk show, that could become a sport that would help, like, you know, we saw with Hillary Clinton later, that would would help media outlets make money, et cetera. And ultimately then these voices of people who are really trying to change society get silenced and forgotten. So I wanted to bring a story like that out of the past into our present moment and show specifically the resonances with today. So working with my amazing editing team, you know, we would sit there and watch the footage. And whenever we had that response, like, oh my God, you know, can you believe that? That's just exactly like what's going on today. We knew we would have something like a little piece of gold, a little powerful thing that we could insert in the narrative to try to like provoke those thoughts in people as it's happening. But what was kind of eerie and amazing was that often Cher Height would leave breadcrumbs for us to do that. For instance, you know, she wrote all about in her kind of personal writings that we found in the Radcliffe archive and in her autobiography about watching Clarence Thomas and watching Pat Buchanan's speech where he talks about, you know, this, my friend, is radical feminism. And, you know, those things that when we look back now seem like, you know, they were kind of harbinger moments. Like she was writing about them and recognizing them as as really pivotal while they were happening and really presaging a lot of what we've seen in terms of the consequences of this backlash. One of the things that's really striking in the documentary is the way that the politics of the times change around her and certainly are are reminiscent of the way things are today, (laughs) definitely. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way in which in her work and in her, the context in which she's working, she really starts with that radical feminist grounding in the 60s. And she has, she has these groups of people. She has this community around her. And then by the 80s, you can tell, oh, the politics have really changed here. This is a really different political situation than it was in the 60s. Can you talk a little bit about how that influenced what she was doing and maybe the perception of her work? Definitely. I mean, I think I will say one of the things that struck me the most when I was looking back over the material and footage and thinking about it was how I realized how myself as a college student in the 1980s, by the late 80s, when I hit college, I would have been embarrassed to call myself a feminist. I would try to find all different kinds of ways of saying it. I'd forgotten about this until <laughs> until I started looking at this material. But then I, I could remember myself saying things like, well, I'm not one of those like hairy armpit feminists or I'm not, you know, I believe in gender equality. But this mainstream media narrative that 
feminism was sort of a dirty word and feminists were these big reactionaries and feminism was something to be scared of had really seeped down even to me and I was going to an extremely liberal small college. So, and considered myself progressive. So I think just in terms of like how we saw what a desirable, highly functioning woman was supposed to look like, the construct got narrower and narrower and narrower kind of over time. And I think that had really profound impacts and it had impacts on Cher and that people stopped wanting to publish her work. That had a lot to do with like the extreme reaction against her and her work and how her character was sort of assassinated in the press. But it also just had to do with the fact that there was much less of an appetite to publish work like that at all that was challenging basic cultural presumptions about our our society. So, for instance, she wrote a book later after she left the U.S. and moved to Europe. And this was in the early 90s about the nuclear family in which one of her findings was that children who grow up in single parent households actually do better than children who grow up in two parent households where there's like a traditional dominant father. And that really put her right exactly in the crosshairs of the right wing and people didn't like that at all. So she never stopped. She had a really uncanny ability to look and see what the prevailing media narrative was and then try to go right against that and kind of expose it and fight it. But it also cost her a lot to try to do that. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Nicole Noonan, director of The Disappearance of Cher Heights. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Justin Torres on the line with us today. His new book is called Blackouts, and Justin is going to give us a book recommendation. Justin, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend... It's called My Body is Paper, and it's by Gil Quadros, and it's coming out next year. And it is the collected writings of Quadros that have not yet been published. So he published one book called City of God, which is fantastic and amazing. 30 years ago, he died at the age of like 34. He had AIDS, and he was an incredible poet and story writer and I just love his stuff and that book is hugely important to me and my colleague at UCLA Rafael Perez Torres alerted me that he was helping he was one of the editors helping to bring out Quadros's unpublished work and I was so excited he's like oh you want to write a forward I was like I would love to write a forward like I this is this writer means so much to me. And so I wrote a forward for it. So I got to read I got to read it early and I, I wrote a forward for it. And it's, I think he's just a devastatingly honest writer. I think he writes, you know, with this kind of urgency, but also just like, there's something so, so achingly alive about his prose and, and his poetry and, all of his choices, and he's the cat's meow, what can I say? I think it's going to be a really important book, yeah. I agree. I used to teach, I taught one of his stories at UCLA for a long time, Unprotected, which was, which has a very, for people who've not read it, has a very, very long anal sex scene. It's quite detailed, and it was a fantastic story to teach. I thought I thought it was like, a, I mean, he's such a beautiful writer. Yeah, I know. And his attention to the body and to touch. I mean, 
I'm like, you know, I'm always like railing that queer literature and queer cultural productions like are there's not enough sex. I'm like, I mean, uh, he makes me seem like a prude. What I do, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) I think all of us, us. yeah, yeah. He's he's just you know, and it was a political act as well, right? As he's dying to focus on pleasure and emphasize pleasure. Yeah. Well, Justin, wait, how did you discover, can you tell us how you discovered Gil Quadras and his work? You know, it was a friend of mine who's like a, a poet himself and also an academic. Uh, he told me to read City of God many, many, many years. And we've been friends for 20, 25 years. But a long time ago, he told me to read City of God. And, and he was just like, you're going to you're going to love this. Like, <laughs> like this is, and, and I read it and I was just, yeah. And it was um, massively influential on me and my writing. And, you know, I think because, because Gil, I'm calling him Gil, if anyone, I, I definitely did. <laughs> I wish I did, but I don't. Um, but because he moves so seamlessly between poetry and prose and because his prose is so poetic and his poetry is so narrative, he taught me a lot about writing you know, about like getting to the heat, getting to the moment. I think that I, especially my first book, like I was really trying to have it feel urgent and immediate and think a lot about touch and the body. And, you know, it's just, he's the one. (laughs) Um, What a beautiful recommendation. Justin, will you tell us the title of the book again, or the books and the author? So the the book that's going to come out next year is called My Body is Paper. And the book that should be read in advance of that right now, if you haven't already, is City of God. And they're both by Gil Quadras. Thanks so much, Justin. We've been speaking with Justin Torres. His new book is called Blackouts. It's a novel. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Nicole Noonan, director of The Disappearance of Cher Height. One of the things that I want to turn to now is about the disappearance of Cher Height. So she's in this wild backlash, right, where, as you had described before, she's being punted from basically one talk show to the next increasingly turned into she kind of moves from a media maven to too much of a diva and then finally becomes a villain by the time she's on a current affair which i also find very interesting as you're talking about it's this is the story not just of one woman's research that kind of opens up whole new realms of sexuality and thinking about female sexuality and male sexuality but it's also about these mainstream media changes. And you're starting to get these kind of buzzy, the talk shows, but also kind of sensationalist shows like Current Affair that oftentimes get their frisson or their like grip with the audience by embarrassing people. And so one of the things that Maury Povich, the host of A Current Affair, which was an early Murdoch property also, does is to kind of Instead of talking about her work, which is how he got her booked on the show, he wants to talk about this moment in which she allegedly, we don't know really the truth, I think, but attacked a chauffeur. And that is when she walks away. They, of course, film the walking away from the camera and her you know, shouting and yelling. This happens with another interviewer. And then she seems to kind of say, I'm done. I'm leaving. She marries a German concert pianist, I believe, and then decamps for Europe. 
Can you talk about that decision and kind of why she felt pushed to basically go into a self-imposed exile? Yeah, I mean, she was getting death threats on her answering machine. People who had formerly supported her work had stopped supporting her work. She was kind of almost like an object of ridicule and scorn at that point in the U.S. And I think she just hit a breaking point and just couldn't do it anymore. Interestingly, audiences have often said to me, like, they didn't know why she kept doing that in the first place. Like, why would she keep going on these shows when they were just sort of setting up stunts like, you know, Oprah making her face an all-male audience or this kind of thing. And I... I think, you know, as soon as she recovered over in Europe, she was back at it on European shows, which may have been a bit more enlightened, but there was, I've watched a lot of them and there was certainly a lot of chauvinism in those shows too, you know, and she kept doing that too. I find it interesting that so many people kind of wonder if there's something suspicious about her because she kept putting herself through that because the way I really came to see it, you know, from reading so much about her and listening to so many people talk about her, I'm completely convinced that she did it because she believed it was the truth and she wanted the truth to be known. And I think part of her, the reason she moved to Europe was to get away and hopefully be happier than she was capable of being in the U.S. in that environment, but also to have the freedom to keep thinking and keep writing and keep observing and keep trying to get the truth out there. You know, she didn't want to accept just like, I mean, what would have been the the point of staying here in those circumstances really for her. And she's certainly part of a long tradition of artists and thinkers and writers who have left the U.S. for Europe in similar circumstances. Well, this in a, in a weird way is actually rewinding us to the very beginning of the story, which is that she had, I love the way that you frame this, that it's like she's trying to tell the truth to anybody who will listen to it. And she almost has seemingly very little concern for how much she will suffer as a result of it. And this seems to have a very real echo to her experience early on in grad school at Columbia University, where she was a grad student, I believe, in the history department. And she wanted to study, now this is the late 1960s, so it's an interesting, I believe it's 1968, it's an interesting time where there is a lot of ferment about gender, sexuality, you know, we're about to enter the era of gay liberation, there's lots of stuff happening, but what she finds in Colombia, like as a grad student, is that if she does any research on sexology, as it's formally called, but also any kind of research into sexuality, she's treated as a total pariah. And it seems like this is something that she struggles with over and over and over again. And I wonder if that's also a kind of through line in her life experience that then comes back to bite her when in order to support herself. And there's a really interesting opening to the movie where you talk about her work as an illustrations model for basically bodice rippers and kind of, you know, yellow back novels. And that ends up being the thing that people use against her to ignore both her research and say, oh, but also you you posed in Playboy, right? Or you used to be this kind of like a nude model. So can you talk a little bit about how she's fighting both to have her own sexual freedom, but also to tell the truth about sexuality throughout her career? Yeah, I mean, I think in so many ways, she was, again, very prescient. Sometimes when we were in the editing room, we would talk about her as like this sort of space alien who came from another planet, <laughs> you know, and could see things clearly. She could see, oh, that's a construct. That doesn't need to be that way, you know? 
And then she would, as Jean Simmons from KISS, her upstairs neighbor in New York would say, you know, she would ask, why? Why do we have this construct? Why do we behave this way? What would it be like if things could be different? And I think she felt that way, even as a very young woman, she was writing about feeling that way about her own sexuality. She didn't understand why as a child she had to be shamed for masturbating. And she returned to that topic in her political writings again and again. You know, she felt really bad for kids that were being put in that kind of position. That was a a front that she wanted to free people of. And then as she became a beautiful woman in her own right, she really didn't understand why she had to suffer a double standard. You know, I think for about a week, she tried wearing plaid shirts and cut her hair short and uh, went on some, you know, feminist talk shows. But, you know, she couldn't keep up that charade because that wasn't sheer height. She was a very, a true iconoclast who just could not support inauthenticity. And I think she felt she had a right to borrow from anything she saw that was beautiful and fashion or history or music. You know, she had opera, she had like fabulous drapings all over her apartment. She tried to make herself look like 1930s movie stars or pre-Raphaelite paintings. You know, she she didn't understand why she had to censor herself and why she had to be in the particular box that people wanted to put her if she was going to be considered either sexual and beautiful or intellectual, you know? She wanted to be able to have it all. And she was uncompromising in that way. And that also caused her to suffer. But it also makes her kind of a, an icon or or really kind of heroic, I think, when you look back on it now. And for instance, you know, we had this fabulous director of photography, Rose Bush, who's a trans woman, who really related to Cher's, you know, feeling of like, I'm just going to express myself and the ful- fullness of who I am. And I'm not going to worry about the constructs and the boxes that people are giving me to live within and telling me how I should look or what I should be like. So that was another reason why I felt it was a really important movie for this moment in time. Yeah, I agree. I think there's something that she says, or perhaps she writes, I think it's near the end of the movie, where she says younger women, she doesn't want younger women to have to fight the same battles all over again. It struck me as like an incredibly tragic goal because that's almost exactly what's happening, right? I mean, there are different fronts. Some of them are exactly the same fronts, like Roe v. Wade. But then there's there's different fronts, like trans rights, gay rights. We're kind of doing that all over again. And I mean, she passed away in 2020. And I wonder if you got a sense of how she felt about her undertaking whether she felt that she had succeeded in some way, whether she had, she felt that she had fought some battles that hopefully other people would not have to fight again and had won, <laughs> or if she felt that she had lost, like, if, was there a sense in terms of like how she felt about her own work by the end of her life? Yeah, I mean, I know that she, I found a, a thing that she wrote, which was quite beautiful towards the end of, you know, the time that she was writing. She died of a a long neurodegenerative disease. But while she was still sort of writing, she said, I was able to make, she was noting that things were getting worse, you know, that the climate was getting more hostile for women. And she said, you know, I was able to make the change in women's orgasm. And that was something to have accomplished. But really like now, you know, there's so many things that still need to be fought for. 
and things are getting worse. And she said, I think what we need to do is get back to organizing like we used to. She had really amazing memories of that kind of rush of the, you know, kind of heady days of the second wave feminist movement and all the friends that she had, you know, who were amazing people like, you know, Kate Millett and T. Grace Atkinson and like, you know, people like really incredible thinkers. And I think she saw the lack of kind of movements and organizing as a big problem. And that was where she was kind of increasingly putting her focus along with looking at the media. But I felt some solace in knowing that she did credit herself with that change, even though, of course, she didn't do that on her own. Even her own enterprise was collaborative, but there were many other people working on on that issue as well. But she certainly played an outsized role in it. And I also know that she went to accept an award later in her life, like a Lifetime Achievement Award. And she said, I would do it all over again, which also made me feel happy as well. But she was left with a a strong sense of like the work's unfinished and um, people are going to have to get in the streets and, and fight to finish it, you know. And that's the kind of energy that we tried to end the film with was a note of the tragedy of what happened to her, but also the kind of amazing fact that this person who did not come from financial means or, you know, she was a young girl born in a small town and, you know, in St. Joseph, Missouri in 1942. And she caused a cultural revolution. How amazing is that? Hopefully people can take some solace from that and just some energy moving forward into the future, you know, for the struggles ahead. Well, that's how just to kind of end, one of the things that the film made me think about, I mean, Share Height is, and I'm sure this is going to be true probably for most of our listeners who even are familiar with the name, is somebody who you're like, oh yeah, I remember something about the female orgasm, but I don't, what? Like, was there anything more? And I was deeply embarrassed that I did not know who should, that I could not remember even basic things about it. Like, again, literally all I remembered was something about the female orgasm. So there's a, a very real sense in which Cher Height, her research, maybe not its impacts, but her research and her have been forgotten, right? And that's part of what's happening with the disappearance. So I'm, I just wanted to ask you as we close, kind of why have we forgotten Cher Height? And what do you think that forgetting of not just Cher Height in particular, but of figures like this in our history what does that mean for us kind of culturally, socially, and politically? And why is it important to revisit and remind people of those stories? Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, this feminist Phyllis Chesler, who's a friend of Cher's who's interviewed in the film, told me to read a book by a feminist named Dale Spender in Australia called Women of Ideas and What Men Have Done to Them. You should check it out. It's pretty incredible. It sort of takes a case, it's like a, almost an encyclopedia of incredible women who wanted to break free of patriarchy and change the culture and other amazing things that they wanted to do or did do and sort of shows one after another how not just that they were silenced, but how they were silenced, you know? And that lit a real fire under me, you know, to tell this story because I think I hoped that we constructed the film in such a way as that you see this as a phenomenon, that it doesn't just apply to share height, it applies to so many things. You know, we have a bit in the early on in the film where Cher's colleague Carla Jay is talking about trying to study 
the history of, you know, gay communities in Paris in the 1920s while she was at Columbia and getting shut down. But they were having to rediscover, you know, we now know that there were like artist colonies and queer communities in Paris in the 1920s. But we know it because Carla J had to fight, you know, and others had to fight to write scholarship about it because it had really been forgotten in the 1960s that that even existed. So it happens very quickly, the kind of forgetting of these things. And yet having those examples, those those icons of people who can reimagine a better, more equitable world is incredibly critical to our ability to continue to believe that. I mean, I, I feel that's what the shutting down does. You know, the shutting down and the forgetting and the silencing keeps us from believing that change is possible. It makes it so much harder to imagine that it could be than when you can see how people did that in the past. So I think the remembering of people like this is incredibly important. And I think the silencing of them is an enormous tragedy that, you know, sets us back decades, you know, in some ways. Could not agree more. And that is a lovely kind of salvo, I think, to end on. We have been speaking with director Nicole Noonan about her most recent film, The Disappearance of Cher Height. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.